Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome, everybody, to the Law Pod. Last time I had the opportunity to host, I, I forgot to say, welcome to the Law Pod. So uh, this time I've got that in there. I got that out of the way. My name is Shad Maruna. I am the co-director of, of the, the Institute of Criminology and Criminal Justice, part of the School of Law at Queen's University, Belfast. Uh, and, and it's my great honor today to host this discussion with our distinguished uh, speaker uh, for the uh, ICCJ's annual lecture, uh, the incredible uh, Reuben Miller from the uh, University of Chicago, the birthplace of sociology in, in the United States, although probably a, a fellow named Du Bois was, was uh, <laughs> the, a, the actual uh, founder of, of sociology in America, but... but uh, We'll let that one go by. Um, University of Chicago has produced some pretty good work, but none as impressive and exciting as this uh, um, um, incredible work we're here to talk about today. Uh, Ruben uh, was good enough to talk to us uh, about his book, Halfway Home, Race, Punishment, and the Afterlife of Mass Incarceration. Um, this book is out now about a year, year, two years, two years, two years now. It's been out. It has won virtually every prize it can win. It was the uh, 2022 Prose Award for Excellence in Social Science. It won the 2022 Book Prize from the Law and Society Association. Um, most impressively, uh, in, in 2022, the MacArthur Foundation um, awarded Rubin with its uh, famous uh, Genius Prize, the, the MacArthur Fellowship. Um, uh, this uh, um, is a book that is virtually impossible not to love. Um, I, I strongly recommend it. I'm going to quote from the, the, the author himself in, in describing the, the, the purpose of this book, largely because it captures just the, the, the beauty of the language used throughout. Uh, Ruben tells us in, in chapter one that halfway home is an invitation to go with the nation's castaways as they gather their belongings, spend time with their loved ones, and try to make lives for themselves. Uh, the book is, is um, it's so much more than a book about what, what sometimes in the United States context called prisoner reentry, um, the, the idea of, of, of people coming home from, from prison, uh, obviously. It is about prisoner reentry, but it's 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 about so much more. It it, it is um, uh, a, a book with with enormous ambition, and and a book that that succeeds in in, in those ambitions. So so I'm uh, delighted to be joined here uh, with, by Ruben to talk about this work. But I've also got one of my my colleagues, uh, uh, esteemed colleagues, uh, Dr. Teresa Degenhardt from the School of Social Sciences, Education, and Social Work, uh, at, who who is also like me, a big fan of, of this book. Uh, so, so rather than letting our guest speak, who, who's been speaking uh, for the last two hours to our PhD <laughs> students and anyone else uh, who, who can um, um, grab his attention for a few minutes, I thought we'd start with you, Teresa, and, and, and if you could just say, what it is it uh, that you love about this book? 
I really love the book, as you said, uh, for the writing. Uh, it's um, written in a, a, a very um, fluid way. You can really appreciate it as you would in a novel. You are thrown into the action. And I think what I like the best is that instead of being uh, like most uh, criminological books filled with citations and <laughs> references to everything that has been already said on on the topic, you kind of intertwine or you can perceive the studies underneath doing the, the work, but you don't necessarily have the sparkling citation there apart from a couple. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I like that. And I like that the fact that uh, you can also, you use a lot other forms of knowledge that are not necessarily usually considered valuable in the academy. Uh, I'm talking about references to music like Nina Simone or references to James Baldwin. So yeah, I think Baldwin and, and Simone are like muses that, that, that inform, you know, every page of this, of this book. It was great yesterday in the talk. I, I, I warned the audience. We might hear from from people like James Baldwin. Uh, up he came on slide number two, and then then Nina Simone afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> um, can can you tell us a bit about uh, the, these these two? Why them? What what do they their their work mean to you? How did that influence the book? I guess. No, I appreciate it very much, and I'm I'm just deeply honored to to be with you both uh, for the last couple of days and. Um, and also, you know, this is my inaugural trip to Ireland, so so, so Belfast has been good to me, right? I've ha I've had my 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 Guinness, my, my obligatory <laughs> pint of Guinness. I've had my is it just ramp? one? I've had <laughs> champ. champ. I've had champ. You've had a lot of rain. <laughs> obligatory. Uh, got my uh, umbrella. Yes, yes, great. <laughs> Did not have my Irish breakfast just yet. That's probably on on uh, on for tomorrow. Uh, because I'm going to drink quite a bit tonight. Anyway, <laughs> but so... <laughs> That's a good prediction in Ireland. Yeah, I think you're safe in that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, no, so, so, so for me, I, I come out of a black intellectual tradition um, in the U.S., and, and in the black intellectual tradition, everything counts. Everything counts. We learn from it all. And some of this is like a pastor might... might you know, give a sermon about the Lion King or something. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like yeah. you know, you look at like, no, Mufasa, no, you don't do it. You know, that might happen. Um, you know, but 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 also, but also, you know, the the the, the songs, um, you know, got us through movements, got us through, of course, you know, the long 19th century. And James Baldwin and Nina Simone reflect, in my mind, the best of the black intellectual tradition. They are among, um, you know, just sort of the most esteemed writers, creatives, producers of really important work. And for me, they were a bit of a North Star. So Centerman, for example, um, offered to me a way to understand rejection. You know, and in the, in the song, the center you know, is looking for respite on Judgment Day. And he runs to the rock, the river, the sea, and even to the good Lord. And everyone tells him to go. Everyone rejects him. Everyone refuses um, to offer the care that their position is supposed to offer. Rocks hide things, you know. The the, the river and the sea, This these are bodies of water that, that, that should provide um, both, you know, sustenance, something that's needed, but also just just respite, just a cool 
um, um, uh, sort of rejuvenating uh, moment. It's the place you go. You, you, you build cities like Belfast by water. You build, you build, you build um, lives by and around water. But the river boils, the sea bleeds, the rock says, I'm not going to hide you. And God, who, of course, is the one um, that folks believe in God, including me, you know, um, turn to in times of need, says, go to the devil. You know, and so and so and so so Simone is 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 telling us through her poetry what rejection is, how rejection feels. And then she's also emoting it. It also comes from her. You know, she's a pianist and a singer um, and just a really astute writer uh, across forms. Uh, and um, there's that. And then James Baldwin, of course, um, is writing from his body. He says the job of the writer is to vomit up, to vomit up, you know, basically what the world has done to you. And so, and so, so he draws from himself, um, and he and he and he, and he, and he, and he, and he vomits up um, the lives, you know, what it means to experience um, the social milieu that he has to traverse. And so, with with you know interlocutors like that, you know, kind of over my shoulder, challenging, questioning, raising new kinds of questions, um, you know, pushing me. And also as a soundtrack, both the melody of Baldwin's prose, the the melody of his speaking, you know, and 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 and, and Simone's just just this the beauty and roughness and sometimes um, uh, gentleness of, of how she expresses and what she expresses, um, just were were not just in the background; they were in the foreground. But so was Kamazi Washington, you know, a, a, a jazz musician who who you know writes truth in 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 an on an album that's about the harmony of discord and discordant things, you know. And and Robert Glasper, um, you know, I'm listening to black radio, you know, and, and sort of celebrating moments of life that can be drawn from 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 the most tumultuous of, uh, of, of, of circumstances. But this is a part, again, of the black intellectual tradition that, that, that draws from it all. And so, too, we draw from black theorists, but we also draw from all kinds of theorists um, uh, who are thinking carefully about what it means to live uh, at, at a particular moment in time. But that, that's how and why these folks showed up in, right. in my work. I, I was going to ask you, are there others that you've referred or you have used to reflect upon your study or that constitute a solid uh, ground for your uh, research and uh, your development, what we might call the sentimental education. And mm. I'm talking about mm. music, literature, but mm. it could be also criminological mm -hmm. writing, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. Well, so so let's start at the at the at the at the criminological writing. I mean, I'm 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 just moved by um, Megan Comfort's just beautiful work. Um, who's also a, just a dear mentor of mine. Um, you know, I'm right now reading and rereading um, in part in preparation for a visit that I'll make to my university. But Michael Walker, you must bring Michael Walker mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Michael Walker wrote the best ethnography I've read in the last decade. Um, you know, folks like Fergus McNeil, Shad, of course, you know, and on and on. You just, just people who have given us new ways to understand 
um, the social situations that people face. In Shad's case, you know, what kinds of stories do people tell? How do they see themselves in that story? What, what, like, what, what are the, what are the redemptive scripts that show up? Shad was the first person who I read that cited Les Mis, for example. <laughs> you know, right? Like, like the very beginning, you know, of 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 of, of his beautiful book, um, uh, Making Good. Um, and so, 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 the the criminological of Louis Vercant is 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 very central with his interest in punishment and welfare. You know, really for me, a touch touch point um, for how I think and approach um, the, these kinds of questions. And of course, folks like Du Bois, um, you know, the black feminist tradition, um, you know, I draw deeply from Sadia Hartman, who asks in a wonderful essay um, called Venus in Two Acts, you know, her opening line is, you know, what will we make of the life of a slave girl if we encountered her in a moment of freedom, you know? which to me forces me to draw out the dynamic life that we see in the middle of, in her case, enclosure of, of, of all kinds, the, the violence of the slave, narr- the slave archive and the violence of slavery itself. And, she, and, she, and then she's looking for people who've been forgotten. Uh, in, in this case, a woman named Venus, like every other black girl that shows up in the archives in this moment in time. So, so these kinds of things are, 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 are pushing me. Um, as far as music, I've been most recently because I'm working on a new project where I'm trying to understand um, really like the problem of black freedom. You know, this is the title of a book, by the way. Um, so I can't take that title. I wish I could uh, by Tom Holt. <laughs> but 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 I'm, I'm curious about how how slave economies respond to 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 to, to, to emancipation. Uh, you know, the institutions they build. But 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 as I'm listening to that, I'm I'm, I'm listening to the to the to the um, the, the the staple singers a hard rains are coming mm. you know and and and, and, and the staple singers are telling us you know to to, to you know uh, it's it's all about bearing witness you know this song so 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 it, it, I'm being moved and pulled in a bunch of different directions both in literature and the academy but also of course you know in, in, through music for sure. Well, the when you were just describing James Baldwin, you talked about, uh, and, and I'm, I'm going to mis- misquote a, a lovely quote and turn it into something uh, rather grotesque, but vo- vomiting <laughs> up uh, your, your, what the world has basically done to you. I, I also, that was also a, a bad paraphrase. Like, no, well, so don't we're, feel bad. It's getting worse now. We're going <laughs> right, to so whistle down keep, the lane here. And keep yes, it going. Keep it going. Yeah. <laughs> and Baldwin told us all to vomit our, our, our ideas out to the world. Um, there's a lot of you in in this book, uh, and 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 you can't. Uh, I mean, obviously, there, there, there's a lot of, um, of Simone and Baldwin, and and the the people and stories that that you encountered in in a, in a massive five ten years of field work that that went into this this book. But you also um, vomit out what the world has done to you. You you, sure. you talk a lot about your your, your early life uh, experiences about about your family. And so forth, and and that is, um, um, well, it, it's one of the things, one of many things that make this such a a unputdownable book. That's not a, a an adjective, but but uh, you know, it, it, it makes it such a, a compelling read. Um, and and of course, lived experience uh, and the, the 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 UK phrase is 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 coming to the fore at the moment, and and we we've got debates in the literature about. Oh, we know we 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 shouldn't be putting ourselves into our, our our research, and then others saying, if we don't put ourselves into this research, what what are we doing, and and so forth? Can, can you talk to us about bringing oneself, uh, uh, vomiting your your lived experience uh, in, into your 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 work? Yeah, no, thanks for that question. I mean, 
I mean, anthropologists have been talking about lived experience for, for, for forever. Mm. Um, at first, as the, the, the lived experience of the subjects of the research that they're trying to, um, the, the, the questions, you know, who, who've lived this, the, the, the question, you know, like, like live, live the question they're trying to answer. Um, and now we're in a place where lived experience is, is being turned inward, and I appreciate that very much. It's, it's kind of always been the case. Mm. Um, in some cases where people have been asked to defend what they've written because of the social positions that they occupy. Mm. So a trans person writing about trans issues is challenged about their, you know, the, the presumption that they can't be objective or something like that. Right. Or um, the cis person can be uh, about trans issues, right. but the, uh, right. the trans person cannot be. Right. Mm -hmm. And they can be because they've made the world strange. Mm -hmm. and, and the presumption is that the social scientific enterprise, I think, at least in our training, is about making the world strange. And this is very important mm. to do in many cases, because you learn things about the world that you wouldn't take for granted if you didn't make it strange. And so I understand that point. I think a thousand flowers bloom together. Mm. So I think there's room for what we might call traditional social science that needs to distance the self from the object of study or the self from the subject of research because you learn things that way. But I think you also learn things from a place of knowing rather than just making the world strange. And so I was following families who were coping with what it meant to welcome a loved one home and what it meant to have a loved one snatched from them and what it meant to live with the reality that perhaps they never got to know their loved one in a way that they might have found meaningful because their loved one had been taken. In other words, I, I, I was talking to people who lived in the wake of an experiment in human caging that we engaged in and continue to engage in, where we arrested more people each year than we did the year before in my country. And we did that for 27 straight years until we reached a stasis where the stasis is 2 million people held in a cage on any given day where the stasis is the largest prison system that we've known in the Western world, the so-called developed world. Well, that's what they were living with. But if I was honest, this was something I was also living with. If I was honest with myself, I would have been in the model because I was born poor and black after 1972. This is the year that mass incarceration kicks off. Yep. And if you're born poor and black, in a poor community in 1972, the literature says if you drop out of high school, 60% of y'all are going to jail or prison. And if you graduate, 30% of y'all are going to jail or prison. The literature says that in this era, one in two of us has a loved one who's currently in jail or prison. So if I was honest with myself, I would have been in my own motto. I have to be dishonest with myself to not include myself in the motto. Okay, that's part one, <laughs> right? So, 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 so it's a question of honesty, mm. right? It's, it's, it's a question of honesty. Am, am, am I being honest? Yeah, yeah, you know, then there's a question of knowledge. Is the world actually strange? Is this really some alien life form? Or is this a human being? Is this a person of flesh and blood like me? Subject to the joys, pleasures, pain, pressures, 
weaknesses, contradictions that I am. Maybe not expressed in all the same ways, but all the same stuff. So the second question is, what can you know from your flesh? And if you can know a thing from your flesh, is it beneficial to the research enterprise? And so I decided to write myself in because there were things that I knew that not only helped me build rapport with other people who were in the same condition that I was in, not the exact same, but the human condition allows us all into it to some extent. We all live through the age of mass incarceration, whether it's the the 49 percent of black boys who'll be arrested before they turn 23 or the 38 percent of white boys who'll be arrested before they turn 23 years old. But whom we don't talk about because we have not criminalized white people in the same way. We have not stripped white boys of their innocence. You know, and so 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 is there something that we know together? And can we build rapport from that place or trust from that place? And can I ask questions from that place that perhaps haven't been asked because people pretend as if the person who's been locked away is some different and alien species? <laughs> you know, like, 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 like as if that's not a human being in that cage. You can put him in a cage because you don't think he's a human being. But what if I presume he is? Like, like that's, 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 that's the, that's what animated the study. And so I wrote myself in and I thought about what it meant to have a brother in this case who was locked away, to have met my father at the age of 26 and to learn that he did 20 years in a cage, a father whom I met that one time and that one time only, and who was not absent from me for any reason that I knew. I can't presume that he's absent because he was in a prison. He could have just been a jerk, right? Like, like, like that could have just been the case, you know? But it was true that this is this is a part of the, the mystery of the age that we live in. And if I want to unpack it, I have to sort of dig into it. And I hope it produced something interesting and important. Okay, on this issue of the flesh. Let's do it. Here it comes. I have another side. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> okay. So in the book... You write uh, at different points uh, about this relationship between the flesh and the history of mass incarceration, the history of slavery. So in one point, when you reflect on guilt in the chapter on guilt, you talk about how these boys knew from their flesh the statistics. And at the very beginning of the book, you write the history of black incarceration, of racism, of the production of race, the whole history of crime hurt the people we have accused of crimes. And I wonder whether you can tell us a little bit more about how you reflect, how you make sense of this kind of sign, mark, that is ingrained in the flesh of the Afro-American people, black people, or people who have suffered uh, incarceration, even in their past. Uh, Absolutely. um, Absolutely. No, no, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for closely reading the book. Um, just such a powerful question. Um, and so the people who I followed had been arrested 20 times on average. Um, the men, the average onset of first arrest, I should say I followed, I followed empirically about 250 people. Um, and the men, the, 
the first arrest on average was at the age of 14. The earliest arrests were at 10 years old. 10. (laughs) The women, the average was 16. The earliest was around 14. You locking up a 14-year-old girl. Right. In, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a country that prides itself on its patriarchy, you lock up a 14 year old girl. <laughs> um, the literature tells us that um, the social psychology literature, specifically, you know, the work of Atip, uh, Philip Atiba Goff tells us that um, black boys are viewed as four years older on average than white boys and considered more guilty than white boys. Um, and so in, in, in a world that is presumed the violence of black people, uh, beginning with the first, the very first encounter with black people, the Portuguese encounter, that 15th century Portuguese encounter with black people, where black people are effectively made out of whole cloth because before that they're Fulani or Bamaleke. They're not a people, you know, <laughs> or whatever they are, you know, Igbo or whatever they are. That first encounter, a people are made and the presumption of criminality before it's called criminality is also established in that moment because the people rebel, the people run, the people fight in the barracoon in, 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 in on the ship, uh, in the coffles on the way to the barracoon, they fight. They fight for their lives because it's a relation of capture. And I'm not going to sit back and watch you capture me. I'm not going to sit back and watch you capture my child. I'm not going to sit back and watch you capture this person whom I love, who I've formed a bond with. And the presumption is that they're violent. And that presumption of violence is the kernel of the formation of race. Race and racialization comes from the presumption of violence. I don't say this so forcefully in this project. I'll say it more so in the next. Uh, but, 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 but violence is central to it. And the presumption of violence is central to the production of blackness and has followed black people. The presumption that they are violent, that they are, in fact, criminal, that they, they have done something wrong, that there's some ambiguous offense, that they've some ambiguous law of God or man that they have broken, whether that's their nakedness. Their, their godlessness, they had many gods, by the way, but whether their godlessness, their nakedness, or if that's the fear that plantation owners maintain that, that, that they would slit their throats and they should have been afraid because people tried and they should have tried because they were slaves. <laughs> this follows them so that by the time I meet my guys, they've been arrested 20 times and they've been arrested at 10 years old. They've been arrested so often that it's a game. I followed them. Um, one brother who uh, was a survivor of a, there was a, a very a, a, a infamous commander of um, the Chicago Police Department named John Burge, who had tortured him and his torture ring. They called him the Midnight Crew. They have been found to have tortured false confessions out of 200 black men for decades, completely covered up by the person who became the mayor of our city much later, Mayor Daly, who was the longest serving mayor. He was mayor for something like 26 years or something like that. To the other police chiefs, other prosecutors, other cops, 
all silent about this this work of torture that was happening. He told me that it started with police talking to little boys who were standing on the corner, which turned into police putting their hands on little boys who were standing on the corner, which turned into police putting them in the car, which turned into police dropping them off in neighborhoods they knew were racist neighborhoods so that the little boys would have to run home. So they made a game out of it. You see the cops you run. They make it fun because they're children. This is how the legacy of slavery haunts. This is how the specter of violence haunts. This is how the presumption of guilt in this case um, haunts um, people who under other circumstances would be considered uh, innocent. I mean, so, so childhood and innocence are synonymous in the American mind until it comes to black children. Last thing I'll say on this, when Tamir Rice, we had a famous case of a boy who was murdered by a police officer. The police, the boy was playing with a toy gun. He was 12 years old. The police pull up, hop out their car, and within two seconds, they shoot the boy dead in the street, actually dead in the park. He was in a park, wasn't a street. They pulled the car up on the curb, over the grass, Startling the child, jump out, shoot him dead, which was awful. And I don't know what was in the mind of that cop. I don't know what was in the mind of his partner. But I do know that when they covered this crime, it wasn't covered as a crime. And when they talked about the boy that they murdered, The leadership of the fraternal order, the police who were being interviewed, talked about him as the male. The officer that murdered him reported the 12-year-old boy as a 20-year-old man. This is, this is how the legacy of slavery, the legacy of violence, the presumption of violence, the presumption of guilt and the idea that I can extract that from you, right? Like, I, I, I can, you, you, you owe me something. Guilt is debt. You owe me. Something and I'm going to pull it from your flesh haunts um, uh, black people in the United States. But I would argue not just the United States. I mean, so like the the disparity, uh, certainly in England and Wales, but I would presume in the rest of the UK um, is worse. uh, The disparity between arrest uh, uh, between black and white people uh, is worse in the UK than it is in the United States. They're murders, mad murders in the UK. It just doesn't get national attention. Yeah. Until the Casey report here last week. But but uh, you're ab- absolutely right. Yeah, it's, it's been a very open secret for, for a long time. It, you, you, it is a wonderful a- answer, as, as always, Ruben. And, and you, you, do, you do a really interesting thing that I also want to just uh, – certainly comes through throughout the book and, and, and in, in your talks um, that I want to talk about from a kind of – I think it's a methodological question, mm. but it might be more uh, than, than that. But but you know so so you're an ethnographer that the, the, this is uh, your, your gift you 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 hang around with people uh, for long long periods of time you talk to people uh, you, you get to know them uh, and I, I also do qualitative methods uh, I, I couldn't call myself an, an ethnographer but 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 I'm in the same family sometimes the work we do um, is criticized rightly. Uh, 
for for being so micro level, uh, and I never quite understand the, the the wood from the trees, but but mm. that we focus on on stories of of, of a young person. We 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 get into his his family life. Uh, we 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 get into uh, his his behavior at school and so forth. And and uh, um and because that's what we're seeing, and we we get engaged deeply into that that individual life. But we leave out the the the, the macro. We leave out the wider historical context. Uh, we, we we leave out how did he get to to that street corner where we hung out with him and and watched his his skateboard gang or whatever it is that, that, that we're watching and and you you bring those ghosts that the, the ancestors the history to your your ethnography and and it's you know it's it's a a, a beautiful thing there, there's a, a part where where you say you know it would be tempting to start this story with the war on drugs it would be tempting to start this story in in, in 1972 or 73 when when the uh, mass incarceration started but you go way back you go back to to the, the, the you know the beginnings of of racism you 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 look at at the invention of race and 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 so forth in this so so i mean uh, 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 are you also a, a historian <laughs> or, or do you get those ghosts through deeper immersion in the field that you're not just okay i'm watching these skateboarders and i'm going to find out how they interact and watch this this group dynamic but no, you've got to talk to them. You've got to really get to know them, and 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 from your perspective. And there's no skateboarding in the in the book. No, <laughs> you, know I, you know what I mean. Uh, uh, it, it, can you get the ghosts and that history hmm. from uh, um, from ethnography, or, or 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 must it be in dialogue with with the, that that kind of the wider uh, historical research? I appreciate this question quite a bit. I, I think that you bring everything you have to bear on your questions. Uh -huh. Okay. Okay. And that you pursue to the best of your ability the answers that you raise. And so I don't think that I can understand um, how, you know, there's a brother who I followed in the book who was in the introduction, um, who's, who I call Philip. Mm -hmm. And Philip gets a 77 year sentence. Um, for a murder, mm -hmm. and I'm just perplexed that 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 like I'm trying to figure out the math. Like, how do you get to 77 years? Like, 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 what, like what's the calculus here? Like, like, like 77? Yeah. Like, 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 what in the world is going on? But, but, but I can't understand how Philip gets 70. I can't understand Philip's interaction with me as a chaplain in the jail. And what he asked me for, which is prayer for his case, without understanding the sentence, which he told me. And I can't understand how he gets the sentence without understanding what judges do. Mm. And I can't understand what judges do without understanding the seat of the judge and the seat of the prosecutor. I can't understand any of that without knowing how mass incarceration played out in Chicago. Right. You know? In this moment, and, and and so we have to get to the moment in time mm -hmm. um, that 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 I'm living in, and so I'm not a historian um, by training at all. Um, I'm using historical methods for the next book, and history is really important for me. I think I'm kind of playing a historian for this podcast. <laughs> you know, what I mean? yeah. <laughs> anyway, you're doing it well. Um, yeah. but, trust me. But but but. Um, but but history matters. Like I think that you see, and and the the the, the criticism that um, that ethnography only allows you to see the micros is is valid if the ethnographer only 
attends to the micro. Uh-huh. You know, I think that you see in each interaction uh, social forces at work, but you have to you have to look to see how uh, the interaction came to be, what the contours of it are, um, and how it takes shape. And what that what I think that allows me um, to do is to better understand the interaction itself. Mm-hmm. So 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 it's not that I'm trying to excuse Philip for murder. In fact, I have no reason why he killed the people he killed. Mm-hmm. If he indeed killed them, I'm not sure. You know, I kind of don't see Philip again. Um, I've no, I've no, I don't know, and I don't know anything, for example, about Philip's family. Mm-hmm. That that you know, we we didn't really talk about his family so much. He asked me for one thing, but I do understand something about sentencing practices in the place in which he lives, and so it puts in context how I can come across somebody who gets this kind of thing. So for somebody who's looking for a place to intervene, the history, um, and 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 the the, the the more the more macro structural. Um, context uh, that's at work in a given interaction allows, for example, an interventionist to think about their intervention in a, in a different kind of way. You know, it allows uh, the social scientist who wants to know something about, um, um, you know, a, a, a set of interactions to theorize them in a different kind of way. In other words, if we want to change a thing, we have to understand it in a deep way. And I think you have to bring your full self into that. And I think history shouldn't be absent for that. One of the problems, I think, in the social scientific endeavor is the way we've siloed ourselves. Yeah. You know, so so I'm a sociologist. You know, somebody else is an anthropologist. I'm a criminologist. I'm not running away from criminology. Like, like I'm also a social worker. But I, but I use these things. I say these things for a reason. Like, I'm these things because these things, I'm trained in these things. And these things are brought to bear on my study. But... But if I want to be a, a sociologist who studies history, I must join the section of historical sociologists. And if I want to be a sociologist who studies the urban condition, I must be an urban sociologist. And if I want to be a sociologist, right, like, like, so right, like this, this right. siloing so much so that we have sections of feet of, of disciplines that there was. And not to say that there's something wrong with the sections, but just to say that the idea that um, that that, his, that 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 history doesn't matter uh, to, to an urban sociologist. It just seems to be silly to me sure. or, or, or the idea that. Uh, uh, you know what it means to be in an urban setting might not matter to somebody, a historian who studies like it, it's yeah. just, it's just, it's just, it, it is the, the side, the solos are, are kind of needless. And I think this is a outgrowth of of the transformation of of universities, university systems. I think we were talking about this last night. In fact, um, uh, you know, you know, the, you know, you know, you were reading, um, uh, uh, you know, just sort of, you know. Um, uh, Things from the seventeen hundreds or whatever, sure. and everybody does everything. So before mm-hmm. we get disciplines, yeah, yeah, you know, you, you should say something about that. Like, like before we get disciplines, like what are you seeing and as you're as you're reading these older these older sort of manuscripts? Oh well, yeah, absolutely. Much less of the the kind of fearfulness that we we have today of the sense of well, I I can't mention economics because I'm not an economist, so I'm not qualified to to weigh in on this. Well, you had. You know, the same people writing about economics, they wrote about theology, they were writing about philosophy, they were writing about, you know, sociology. They, 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 uh, and because you can't understand any of these without the other, as you say. And, and, and I understand the, the, the modesty, the, the, the kind of, uh, um, uh, you know, the people don't want to overreach and, and, and speak outside of their, 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 uh, their abilities. But at, at the same point, by, as you say, uh, dividing us in, in, in these mm-hmm. ways, you know, we're, we're missing huge parts of, of the puzzle in front of us. And, and okay, if we're all just criminologists, so I'm only going to talk about 
skateboarding gangs and and and, and I'm, those skateboarders I'm are having a hard time today yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's because i don't know any criminologists who've studied this but but boy if there are they're going to be writing it this podcast uh, sorry lauren they're going to be uh, but uh, anyhow uh, you know because of uh, our, our our kind of modesty uh it actually produces bad bad work as you say dishonest in in, in lots of ways well I think I'm going to ask the question about uh, the methodology. Uh, so in the, uh, the, the very end of the book, you have some sort of a manifesto or a, a, a on the title is The Gift of Proximity, which I really liked as well. Uh, uh, and you talk about your position uh, uh, in, in relation to the research object, but also your understanding of how to do research. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because something that you write in there kind of jars with me and specifically your understanding of the limits of empathy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, um, we, we started this conversation yesterday and I'm so glad to continue it today. <laughs> um, and I've been thinking about um, your, your, your questions since then. Um, yeah, and maybe I should say something else because I, I come from a, a place where uh, from a feminist tradition, let's say, we say it's not enough to be a woman. So the idea of uh, indicating that one uh, subjectivity is uh, fundamental to understand uh, the subject of research is, is also not necessarily the answer. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I th and I, I, I should say I agree with that. Mm. I 100% I agree with that. And so let me perhaps say what I was trying to do. Um, so we, for so long, separated ourselves from ourselves. You know, we're told to make the world strange. We're told to strike a pose of objectivity. We're told to distance ourselves from our passions, um, to, 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 so, so that, so that we might not be read as being blown by political winds so that our work won't be dismissed. Okay. Um, the other side of separating oneself from oneself is to not engage in what, sociologists in the United States dismissively call me-search. So you're not studying yourself and you're not just sort of reproducing yourself um, on the page. And there are benefits to this. There are benefits to distancing yourself from the object is the better word and the word that's used before people... Anyway, from the subject or to make an object out of the subject of the research. There are benefits to that. Distance teaches us things. But there are also things that you learn by getting close to a thing. Um, and I think we talked a little bit about that at the top of the podcast, that, that um, there are things that you see when you're close to a thing that you can't see from a distance. You know, they're just the contours of an object, for example, if you objectify the thing, um, aren't visible. So I can miss the the I, i'm you know you can be accused of missing the forest for the trees but if i look at the forest in a helicopter i'll never see the bark or the patterns that emerge on the bark <laughs> that tell me something about the tree itself that tells me something about the land in which the tree has been planted that tells me something about the forest the, the, right the, the formation of the forest um and similarly if i if i distance myself from my in this case politics if I distance, which is which is which is a politic of justice, I'm looking for justice. If I distance myself from my social position, 
you know, being a black man born poor at a certain moment in time uh, in an era where blackness and poverty are disdained in a specific way, um, then there are things that I don't see and there are places that I can't, for example, ask questions from because I've, I'm taking the traditional pose, which necessarily means researcher, which James Baldwin will tell us, not about researchers, but about people who strike this objective pose, um, who, who, who look for what he calls checks and balances, um, uh, uh, which presumes uh, a kind of white, and he says Christianity specifically, uh, which is super interesting to me. And he says, the reason we do this is because the flesh you want to crucify is my flesh. You're afraid of me. I think in the social sciences, that comes from a sexual panic. I think that comes from a place where people are afraid to align themselves with the other. I think because many an anthropologist was in bed with the other. <laughs> like that's, that's what I think. I, th I think there's it, it, many kids in many islands, right? right that, that, that have professors that are right, like, like, right, but no inheritance. Okay, that, that, that's that's my that's my provocative claim. Uh, but, but, but but no, but but, but I think it, it comes from a kind of sexual panic. I think I think it comes from a, the presumption of taint that's associated with things like blackness and stuff like that. And so and so starting from a position of proximity allows me to ask different kinds of questions. The example that I brought up in the talk um, and one that I, that I turn to quite often are, is the example of like prison food. So I know my brother and I, you know, mentioned this. I know my brother, my brother's something of a foodie, you know, he, 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 you know, you know, is, is a wonderful guy on the grill. He can cook really well. And he has somewhat discriminating tastes when he's sort of in that mode. And I remember what it felt like so, so, so closeness to my own feelings. I remember what it felt like when I watched him eat a soybean hamburger that I bought for about $8 out of a prison vending machine. And I know how nasty that is objectively. And I watched how fast he ate it and how good he thought it was and how grateful he was for me for showing up and buying him this disgusting $8 hamburger. He doesn't say thank you when we go to the restaurant and he buys a $25 hamburger. You, know, you see what I'm saying? But, but, but like, like the prison conditioned him in such a way that I understood in my flesh, not his. I've never been to prison. I can't know his experience. I can know what it feel, felt like for me. And from that place of understanding myself, I'm then able to talk to him about the experience, but also talk to others who are visiting, who are in similar situations that I am. Now, I'm very different from the people in the waiting room. Most of them won't have PhDs. That doesn't mean I'm better. It just means I'm different. Most of them didn't grow up in Chicago. He was in a Michigan prison. You know, there are all kinds of subtle differences. I'm not suggesting that there's some sort of universal politic of representation because all black people aren't the same. All women aren't the same. All trans people aren't the same. That's not the point. But what I am suggesting is that once I get in touch with myself, it reveals things to me that wouldn't ordinarily be revealed. Empathy requires that I project, at least the version that I'm critiquing, requires that I project myself into the shoes of the other. And the reason why... Be, like gender isn't enough, as you mentioned, being a woman isn't enough that, that um, uh, um, is because if I am a, a woman from a particular um, uh, the, the, being a woman doesn't say anything about my analysis, like is it, it, why it's not enough. I, I need it, it, I need a feminist 
analysis. <laughs> like, like, like that's, that's the question. So representation isn't enough. And so what I'm arguing in this case, empathy, um, uh, empathy is limited because my social position uh, 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 shapes how I'm responded to in the social world, even if I overcome the trappings of, 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 of my social location. So even if I even if I decide I have transcended somehow being a black straight man um, from the south side of Chicago, uh, even if I transcend that somehow, the rest of the world has not. And so the rest of the world responds to me in a particular kind of way, which shapes how I move about the world, which shapes my ability to understand the position of somebody else. And so what I suggest is you get in touch with yourself and rather than trying to understand so deeply somebody else's experience, you walk alongside them to learn about their experience from them. So it is a it is a tool to get beyond the limits of what I call the empathetic imagination. I'm not trying to say, I should say, that empathy is bad. I think empathy is wonderful. I think empathy is something that we need, you know, foundationally. I think I think, right? like, I think, I think empathy is necessary. Um, but but I think that empathy only goes so far and what I'm offering is a method. And the reason why um, I'm couching it this way is because I believe that if you're a white uh, cisgender man, you can study Vietnamese trans people. You can study a Vietnamese trans woman. And I think you can study that if you get in touch with yourself first, mm-hmm. you know, and bring to bear all the tools that you have in your attempt to understand their life. But you're interpreting it, knowing that you're always interpreting it from your position. That's that's the point. Yeah, great. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Yeah. I, I we're we're gonna wind down here because we've we've worked you pretty hard at today. <laughs> but, but, uh, just in recognizing this is uh, Law Pod one more time. Uh, let me get that in. Where there. we talk uh, about puppies <laughs> and rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, we talk about the law here on Law Pod, and and, and, and there's there skateboarders. is skateboarders. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're done with the skateboarders. I, uh, you know, there's a legal analysis argument through this book too again you're not a lawyer but you don't mind moving silos tell us about the law and the role laws uh, some mention of what what 14,000 laws in the or, or or more in the case of of, of uh, legal ways of of discriminating against those with, with criminal records what role um, there's a law and then maybe uh, for the uh, our legal listeners uh, many of whom will be will be lawyers themselves or, or, or law students uh, what, what role could could law play in in you know taking up some of the challenges you you bring in this book no thanks so much for that question I mean so 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 the book is the book lands on um, us thinking more carefully about um, political membership. And it calls for a, 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 a radical politic of hospitality is what I say. And we'll probably talk about that in the close. Yeah, please. But, yeah, please. But um, but on the political membership side of things, um, you know, citizenship is more than legal status. So say, you know, just about every scholar of citizenship, you know, citizenship is about belonging to a political community. And the law are the rules of that political community. And the law, the life of the law, operates in such a way that people are able to or not fully participate or participate in that political community. And so in the case of formerly incarcerated people in the United States, but not just the United States, also to some extent here in the UK, 
um, also to some extent throughout Europe. At least he's, this is what people study things like mass supervision, thinking about our dear friend Fergus mm-hmm. uh, McNeil, Crystal Bands, and the 50 or so colleagues who study supervision, who wrote the, the beautiful book, Offender Supervision in Europe, um, talk and think about. Um, that that there that there there are additional rules, additional laws for people who have criminal records to target people's criminal records. In the U.S., there's the formally codified law, the criminal law, and the civic civil legal code that governs everybody. And on top of that, there's an additional forty four thousand laws, policies, and administrative sanctions that govern the lives of people who've been convicted of crimes. This includes 19,000 labor restrictions. In my home state of Illinois, there are 500 employment regulations. And so some of these are laws, some of these are policies, some of these are sanctions, but all of them are legal maneuvers, either through municipal, state, or federal government that have made decisions about the rules for this group. In my home state of Illinois, where Chicago is located, there are 500 employment restrictions. If you include business licenses and property rights, they're like over 900. Across the country, they're 19,000. There are 1,000 housing regulations across the country. In my home state of Illinois, they're like 50. Uh, I'm sorry, 20. They're like well over 20. There are well over 1,000 restrictions on domestic and family rights. In my home state, they're over 50. So, you know, civic participation, 4,000 rules against civic participation in my home state, you know, close to 50. So what this means is that in most states, you know, you can't vote in some states, not most. In a handful of states, you can't vote. You certainly can't vote while on probation or parole in most states. And you absolutely can't vote while incarcerated in almost all states. Um, you, 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 the, the, the whole categories of employment for which you need not apply. Um, uh, uh, you, you may not sit on a jury in, 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 in the vast, like in well over 40 of the states in the union. If you've got a, a felony conviction, you can't sit on a jury, which means you're never judged by a jury of your peers, which means the person you go before who's going to make a decision about your life or your death will never, ever understand where you came from. They'll never, ever understand what it's like in a fleshy way, (laughs) you know, they'll never know from their flesh uh, what it means to, for example, even change your life. Um, uh, 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 You you know, you you, you can be evicted uh, because of uh, changes in because of the drug war, 1989 Drug Abuse Act. The Drug Abuse Act of 1989 says that anyone who is uh, uh, who has a criminal record or even anyone who allows someone with a criminal record so much to visit their home uh, can be evicted from their home if they live in public housing. There's a box on 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 every employment or or, or, or lease, uh, every employment application or application for a lease. So 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 the, so so the the, the 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 laws for people with criminal records that are only for them. Then there are laws on top of laws. You get handed something called a condition of release when you walk out the door that tell you not only things that you cannot do, but tell you things that you must do. You must report to a uh, to a probation office. You must not cross state lines. You may not um, smoke weed um, or, or, or drink, even if it's legal in your state. And if you do, you can go back to prison. You must get a job within X number of days. And if you don't or don't show progress toward it, I can send you back to prison. Uh, uh, you, you, you must... Um, 
uh, uh, participate in narcotics anonymous meetings. You must pee in a cup. And if you don't, you'll go back to prison. So, so all these threats to liberty, so things that, so laws on top of laws. Yeah, and on top of that, there are benefits associated with this that are perverse. Um, if you have a certain risk score, and I know we're wrapping up, um, then, 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 then you might have access to housing. If your children have been taken from you because you've been uh, uh, convicted in the family court, they don't call it a conviction, but, but the family court has decided that you're guilty of child abuse and neglect. At that point, we'll give you access to parenting services. <laughs> you know, right? Like, 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 maybe, maybe we'll provide you with, with access to housing if you've been to jail, went down, and you're one of the the twenty five percent of the people that we can serve, that we order to participate in these kinds of programs, then maybe maybe we'll give you access to housing. So there's also a set of benefits. So it's rights, rules, restrictions, and benefits that are unique to people who are a part of what I write about in different places, uh, members of this kind of carceral class. It's a it's a question about citizenship, but at the end of the day, citizenship is a form of political membership that rests on the idea of belonging. And so, and so what we've done is we've excluded, which is why we get to the question of what we need. Right, right. Which is radical hospitality, right, right. a commitment to belonging. Because these were laws made, I think you rather generously said, made out of fear. I mean, it, it obviously also made out of racism, out of, out of hatred, but 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 largely out of fear. And and so you're you're asking us to to move in in a, in a different direction. Hospitality. What would what would a a, a vision uh, in a, in a concrete legal way? We 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 sort of can understand that concept, and you tell incredible stories about. Uh, individual acts of forgiveness uh, in the book, and I won't g- give away. It's it, it, it's one of the most most powerful passages. Uh, but 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 maybe talk us through what would that hospitality look like on on a policy on a legal framework. So it looks like taking inclusion seriously. So when I sit on um, councils, you know, I'm 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 invited quite often. You are too, I'm sure. Like to 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 you know advise. Um, folks in local, state, and federal government about, for example, reentry policy or something like that. Like, how do we respond to the needs of the new progressive languages, the returning citizen? How do we respond to the needs of the returning citizen? And there are all these discussions about services. And so inclusion is read in their minds. First of all, if they're thinking about questions of inclusion at all, and I think they are trying to, how do we include people with records? Inclusion is read as a function of providing them with access to services. The services are always about how we change people's hearts and minds. How do I change them, process them in such a way that they are no longer violent, that they turn away from crime, that they think twice before they engage in it. We, we know it's about their heart and mind because of the rise of things like, for example, employment placement programs in this new neoliberal age. I'm not employment placement, but employment training programs where, where words like employability circulate. This is stuff I wrote about a decade ago or something like that. But, but where, where, where things like employability circulate in spaces of social care, you know, in spaces where people are homeless or spaces where people are 
formerly incarcerated, where human capital is the model that we rely on to lift people out of poverty. If I just teach you tenacity, grit, and trustworthiness, you know, then somehow, you know, if you're in India or if you're on the west side of Chicago, you'll pick yourself up out of poverty. You will rise, you know, like a phoenix from the flames because you feel better about yourself and you can, you can, you can knuckle through the thousand no's you're going to get in this labor market. If only you have enough confidence to bear the no. Mindfulness, you know? yeah. You know, right, sure, right, right. Sure. How do you, you know, are you in touch with yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, are you connected to good people? You know, do you, have you, have you formed pro-social bonds? Like, like all, like these questions about things that individuals and families do. This is what circulates in these councils. This is what circulates uh, in, in these spaces. Um, and so, what I suggest is, well, what about questions of full democratic participation? Which would mean the ability to land a job. Which suggests more than just the preparation of the worker, preparing the person for the world of work, but preparing the world of work for the person. Which might include something like protections against discrimination and predation on jobs. It might look like the New York Human Rights Commission, which says every New Yorker should have uh, should be de- should have a uniform <laughs> denial for a job for for a job. They should be denied uniformly. If you're denied for a reason that has nothing to do um, uh, with your criminal record, if they say you have a record and you're denied because of that, or if it's a job that really doesn't have anything to do with credit, you deny because of your credit or something like that, then they sue you. Mm. They bring down the weight of the state against people who violate their ability to participate socially, civically, economically. And so and so so taking political membership seriously would mean not just providing services to change the person, it would mean providing bridges from resource poor uh, to, from resource poor people to resource rich institutions, things like work placement instead of work preparation. And it would also mean protection from the violation of these rights because you would be viewed as a real member of a civil society. We see this in a place like Atlanta that has moved to make formerly incarcerated people members of a protected class, for example. So, 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 so what I'm asking is for us to intervene at the level of citizenship because mass incarceration, I argue, is ultimately a problem of citizenship. Yes. It's a problem of political membership, not behavior. That's what I say. Thank you for talking about this because I couldn't decide what question I could ask last. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you this question. So my last question has to be the role of women in this book. Yes. So, the, the, so it seems to me that they have somehow a minor role. Hmm. I wonder whether that is because of consideration of positionality or anything else. Yeah, um, uh, the, the, the extent they have a minor role is, is just a fault. It's just it's just a hole in my analysis. It's just a problem. Um, there are certainly women in the book. You you um, have spoken with women. It appears clear from from the book that you yeah. have done research with them too. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And 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 also like formerly incarcerated women are central to, for example, movements and movement making. Um, it is true though that um, you know, for example, I. Part of the work was about 100 interviews in, in Chicago. Of those 100 interviews, probably 30 were women. About, um, you know, it was, two, it was um, you know, uh, like another 100 or so interviews in, in Detroit, um, 90 interviews in Detroit, um, uh, 30 were women. Um, some of that has to do with 
the fact that women make up about 7% of the U.S. jail or prison population. And some of that has to do with, but it does, but, 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 but the, 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 the women's actual representation in the prison population has very little to do with their prominence in, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the space. So women are the primary, I mean, so, you know, women, women, um, women are leaders in the movement to reverse incarceration of um, women who are arrested, you know, well over half are the primary caregivers of their children, of children who are affected by incarceration of the families that are, women are also the primary people who are, who are receiving men when they come home. Um, you know, so the way I try to get at something that might appeal to, you know, someone looking for a more, like a, like a feminist analysis is through the centrality, what I hope is the centrality of women um, uh, in in my life and in the, in the in 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 the in the in the lives of the people who I'm following, most of whom happen to be men. So, for example, the role of my grandmother, um, you know, my relationship with with my mother, though strained, um, uh, you know, and then the act some of the, many of the activists in the book from um, a woman I call Sabrina, um, a woman I call Yvette. Um, but it does, uh, but I don't do formal gender analysis, you know, and that is just a whole, yeah. Well, there's always time, and, 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 and we, uh, we know you're working on another book, and, and, uh, we're, you know, this is, uh, um, this has been phenomenal conversation. This is just a sample of a kind of uh, um, three-day conversation that has been going on in, in Belfast since, since you got off the plane uh, and 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 we've been deeply honored to have you here to be a part of that uh, with you and uh, yeah uh, f- fabulous questions Teresa and 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 uh, thank you for having me here it's a it's a gift it's a treat really a pleasure thank you for for all it's of us my pleasure. and uh, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, we uh, we wrapped this uh, episode up of, the, uh, of Law Pod, uh, produced by uh, Richard Somerville and directed by by our, our friend Lauren Dempster. And uh, uh, thanks very much for for having us. And and we we will uh, look forward to the next one. Yay! Made it. <laughs>